And you're on right now with Jim Dawes. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. Coming to you on the Mojo 5 radio network. Streaming on demand on iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, and Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at right now, Jim Dawes. Or shoot me an email at right now, Jim Dawes at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. You can call me at 772 245 0750. You know, there's this term. It's sort of a new term, at least to me, called gaslighting. And uh, it means that uh, people try to convince you of an alternate reality. It's uh, largely done online on social media to try to convince you that there's some sort of um, phenomena or trend or truth that uh, you just haven't been aware of and that you don't understand. And it's going on outside of your frame of reference. And I... I'm starting to believe that that's what's going on with this uh, this cultural Marxist hysteria that has overtaken the Democrats and their mouthpieces in the media, uh, where you know they they uh, they whipped this country or appear to have whipped this country into a frenzy. Uh, and I'm starting to think that um, that is uh, maybe their reality in the their bubbles that they live in, but. Uh, I'm starting to see less and less actual proof of it because the president today uh, went to Dayton, Ohio and uh, in El Paso. And, you know, uh, ever since the weekend shootings, uh, the media and the Democratic presidential candidates have been trying to stir up uh, hysteria, anti-Trump hysteria. And, uh, and the media has been predicting that if the president dare go to Dayton or El Paso, that there's going to be mass protests against him and that he won't be welcomed. <laughs> and, uh, and there is no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, the president visited with uh, the victims of these shootings and their families, uh, hospital personnel, law enforcement and rescue personnel. At the hospitals and uh, and uh, in the communities, and uh, he was well received. Um, there were no ugly incidences, and uh, the number of protesters that the media highlighted, and you know that uh, they were looking to try to highlight as many protesters as possible, was basically just a handful. <laughs> I've. I've run condominium board associations and and gotten more protesters than uh, than they filmed in El Paso. And that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much. There looked to be maybe a hundred, you know, carrying uh, carrying their signs and uh, clustering up to fit inside the the news media's frame. But it certainly wasn't any mass protest, and and even that was offset by almost an equal number. Of Trump supporters, so I think maybe uh, the American people are smarter than uh, we give them credit for, and certainly smarter than the news media gives them credit for. Uh, 
and understands that the president's opposition to illegal immigration and his uh, his strong rhetoric trying to move uh, the Congress and the courts to and the, especially the Democrats in Congress to take action on this is not responsible for the El Paso shooter, and they're not as willing to turn a blind eye to the fact that the El Paso shooter, despite the fact of being a virulent racist, was also sort of a left-wing nut. If you um, if you look at a lot of the language in his uh, manifesto, and oh, by the way, we don't know for a fact that he wrote that manifesto yet. It has not been confirmed by law enforcement. Everybody's assuming it was his and probably is. But the news media is not supposed to jump to conclusions, and they certainly are based on this manifesto that has been attributed to the uh, to the shooter. But uh, it's not necessarily the case. The guy that runs 8chan, where the uh, manifesto was posted, sa- says outright that this uh, manifesto was not posted by the El Paso shooter. And that uh, it had been posted previously on Instagram. Instagram is not making any statements about who posted it because they want they don't want to uh, confuse the issue of where exactly these uh, these mass shooters are posting because they want to blame it on bulletin boards like HN and and Gab and uh, Bitshoot and others. When in fact, they're just as often posting on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. But, um, you know, it it was a relatively small turnout um, of the protesters. The protesters were almost outnumbered by uh, Trump supporters. And uh, in Trump's visits to the families, the rescue staff and hospital workers, he was well received. And while this was going on, uh, Joe Biden took the opportunity uh, to give a speech in uh, in Iowa, where he uh, he once again tries to you know blame Donald Trump uh, for the shooter in El Paso. I didn't listen to the whole thing. I did watch it. He he had a very small group. You know that, that's another reason I th- think maybe we're being gaslighted. Trump can show up in these communities and fill up uh, arenas. 20,000 people inside the arena and several people outside trying to get in, just, you know, uh, watching on big screen TVs. And we're told that this is a a major galvanizing event for the Democrat uh, candidates. And Joe Biden announces a day in advance that he's going to give this speech condemning Donald Trump. He gets about 200 people. So, you know, I'm thinking that we're probably headed for a major landslide re-election. I'm thinking that this is going to be one of those uh, elections similar to, uh, you know, George McGovern going down in flames and Walter Mondale going down in flames, where the Democrats have listened to their echo chamber so much that they have lost the pulse of the American people. Here's Joe Biden at his speech trying to tie Trump to these shootings. How far 
is from Trump saying this is an invasion to the shooter in El Paso declaring, quote, this attack is a response to Hispanic invasion of Texas. How far apart are those comments? How far is it from white supremacists and neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, Trump's very fine people chanting, you will replace us. Man, this guy can't keep his facts straight at all. They were they were chanting, you will not replace us. And of course, we know that he is uh, dishonestly repeating this lie that Trump said that there were very fine people among the neo-Nazis and the Klansmen, which is a blatant lie. Most people know it. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Biden based his whole campaign, that was his, his announcement speech, was based on the lie that Donald Trump called neo-Nazis and Klansmen in Charlottesville very fine people. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? With those words, the President of the United States assigned a moral equivalence between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. So Antifa, uh, you know, that's a pretty interesting um, little announcement there. In in one case, he is uh, equating um, Antifa, you know, with good people. Joe Biden is saying that Antifa was just there to oppose hate, when in fact we know that Antifa um, uh, incites violence. That's what their whole organization is based on. And two, the whole idea that President Trump said that uh, both sides had very fine people. A lie that's been disproven repeatedly. And let's uh, let's talk about uh, Trump not being allowed to use this word invasion. Well, when you have, you know, 100,000 people a month showing up at your southern border trying to um, dishonestly enter the country... And you've got about 20 million already living in the country illegally. What other word would you use for it other than an invasion? Uh, any word that you ch- chose, being swamped, being overrun, being inundated, all of these words the, the culture of Marxists would object to. It is most certainly an invasion. No other word really describes it. Words have meanings. But, you know, um, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Joe Biden was actually bragging about the fact that um, these unprecedented levels of immigration into our country were going to, in fact, uh, subsume the the uh, traditional American culture. Not only our Muslim communities, but African communities, Asian communities, Hispanic communities. And and the wave still continues. It's not going to stop, nor should we want it to stop. As a matter of fact, uh, um, it's one of the things I think we can be most proud of. So so there's a second thing in that black box, an unrelenting stream of immigration, nonstop, nonstop. Folks like me who are Caucasian of European descent, for the first time in 2017, we'll be in an absolute minority in the United States of America. Absolute minority. Fewer than 50% of the people in America, 
from then and on will be white European stock. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a source of our strength. Well, why is that a, so, a good thing? Why is it, how is it a source of our strength? There's been no country in the history of the world, no multi-ethnic, multicultural country that didn't ultimately disintegrate into squabbling uh, tribes. He doesn't, and none of these people do, ever stop to tell us how is this, this is a good thing, how it is a source of our strength. And you talk about something that might excite uh someone or provoke someone uh, that sort of talk certainly would and as a matter of fact um, early leaks from law enforcement that have interviewed the suspect in El Paso say that uh, it wasn't uh, Trump's rhetoric that provoked this uh, this murderer Stephen Hooper who's a 30-year veteran of the FBI uh, said that his sources were telling him that the tr- the the uh, trigger was watching the Democrat national uh, debates, where all of the candidates declared that they were going to provide government-sponsored health care to illegal immigrants. Now that is actually an insane statement. If you're going to advocate for open borders and then advocate for government-provided health care for illegal immigrants. <laughs> That is that is the definition of insanity. Let's see if I can find the the link to the audio. I can't find the link to the audio, but uh, but what if it was you know the language being used by the Democrats that triggered this guy, and not the language being used by the President of the United States? We know for a fact now that in the case of the Dayton uh, shooter, that this appears to be. Uh, the very first case of an Antifa mass murder. And the, uh, the guy that is really the, uh, the go-to reporter, one of the very few that are reporting on the left-wing violent uh, street thugs that call themselves Antifa, Andy No, had an article in uh, the New York Post today. He says, over the weekend, America suffered two mass shootings within hours of each other. And uh, he says, while the attacks are similar, the response from liberals and the leftists has been anything but. All the Democrat candidates, Biden, Warren, Harris, Sanders, quickly condemned white nationalism. However, he says, when it comes to condemning the Dayton shooters, far left views all have remained mum. Others, such as anti-police activist Sean King, even claimed that the Dayton shooter targeted blacks as a hate crime. But while the Dayton shooter didn't leave behind a manifesto, his extensive social media footprint provides clues as to what inspired him. And federal investigators announced on Tuesday that they're looking into his exploration of violent violent ideologies. This shooter, and I'm not going to say his name, has long expressed support for Antifa, their accounts, their causes, and their individuals. And that, of course, is this loose, leaderless, uh, resistant cells of networks of militant leftist acts, uh, activists that physically attack anyone to the right of Mao 
in the name of anti-fascism. Kill every fascist, the shooter, shooter declared in 2018 on Twitter, echoing the rally cry of these Antifa ideologues. Over the next year, his tweets became increasingly violent. Nazis deserve death and nothing else, he tweeted last October. And Betts frequently flung around the label Nazi at those who disagreed with him online. By this last December, he had reached out on Twitter to to the Socialist Rifle Association, which is an Antifa gun group, to comment about bump stocks. And the Socialist Rifle group responded to him. In the months leading up to the rampage, Betts expressed a longing for climactic confrontation. In response to an essay by Intercept writer Mindy Hassan, titled, Yes, let's defeat Trump or impeach him, but what if he doesn't leave the White House? The shooter, Betts, wrote, Arm, train, prepare. And by last June, He's writing, I want socialism, and I'll not wait for the idiots to finally come around to understanding. Last week, he was promoting posts that demonized Senator Ted Cruz and Bill Cassidy's resolution against Antifa extremism. So, this is the gaslighting I, I opened the show talking about. Both of these uh, these shooters were left-wing. One of them was a violent uh, racist lefty, environmental extremist, wanted, uh, wanted Marxism. And the one in Dayton was, in fact, an Antifa um, adherent. Have you heard any of that in the mainstream media? No, and you won't. It doesn't fit the narrative in, the, in, the, in this new multi- uh, in this new cultural Marxist world, anything that doesn't fit the narrative is omitted from any reporting that you may get. And one of the things I'm noticing more and more is this, uh, this cultural Marxist hysteria, and you can't call it anything but hysteria, that, uh, that the media and the Democrats have been promoting really bears a striking resemblance to the... Um, to the uh, protests that we saw on college campuses. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Missouri State, Mizzou, and Evergreen State in, uh, in Washington, where these cultural Marxists shout down everybody uh, that, they disp- uh, that they disagree with and, uh, and just raise so much hell that, uh, you know, uh, all all uh, legitimate forms of debate are lost. Truth becomes subjective. Anything that uh, doesn't serve the cultural Marxist agenda is, uh, is not accepted, no matter the truth of it or the logic of it. If you're arguing with one of these cultural Marxists using facts and logic, <laughs> you're going to be extremely frustrated. They don't care about that. To them, truth is whatever serves the anti-white, anti-Western, anti-American agenda. 
if you're in this ideological war, you might as well not even try to waste your breath arguing with these people. You need to just find the people that are sort of the fence setters and that haven't made up their mind yet and try to convince them. But there is a, maybe a silver lining. If all of this is true and the Democrats actually are you know, going to ultimately take over this country, if you're, if you're for an immigration restrictionist, by the time the Democrats get through with this country, no one will want to emigrate here any longer. Those days will be over with. But we've got to stay on offense. The cultural Marxists, um, whether they're gaslighting us or not, they always stay on offense. They're always accusing those who oppose them of being evil, of being morally retarded, of being somehow, you know, um, outside the acceptable discourse. And you see these people largely that the cultural Marxists attack desperately trying to defend themselves and correct the record. That's not going to work. The only way that we're going to win this battle ultimately with these Marxists is by going on the offense. <laughs> there was this, uh, this contributor on CNN who said the president was sending some sort of crypto message to white supremacists by taking, by ordering the flags set at half staff until tomorrow. I'll just let you listen to it yourself. And let me, let me ask you if you think this guy is in control of his, uh, his faculties. We have to understand the adversary and the threat we're dealing with. And if we don't understand how they think, we'll never understand how to counter them. So it's the little things and language and messaging that matters. The president said that we will fly our flags at half-mast until August 8th. That's 8-8. Now, I'm not going to imply that he did this deliberately, but I am using it as an example of the ignorance of the adversary that's being demonstrated by the White House. The numbers 8-8 are very significant in neo-Nazi and white supremacy movement. Why? Because the letter H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. And to them, the numbers 8-8 together stand for Heil Hitler. So we're going to be raising the flag back up uh, at dusk on 8-8. No one's thinking about this. No one's, no one's giving him the advice or he's rejecting the advice. Oh, my God. This is a reporter on a major network who is getting into numerology and saying, I think he's implying that the president is sending some sort of cryptic Nazi signal to his supporters. But go online and watch the coverage from El Paso. You'll find out that uh, it's all good. These protests, these huge protests didn't materialize. Ari Belcher, the, uh, the far left-wing fanatic over there at MSNBC had a reporter in the street and asked him about it. Jacob, you've been in El Paso talking to the community. What's the feeling there about the president's visit? 
Well, Ali, given the way that the president has talked about Latinos uh, and Latinos make up uh, the vast majority of the population of the city uh, of El Paso, surprisingly uh, positive is the way that people are responding here in the wake of the shooting. I see um, calls for unity um, and a great spirit of togetherness. What they don't understand is the president wasn't referring to Hispanics. He was referring to illegal immigrants, regardless of their race. He's not targeting them because they're Hispanics. He's targeting them because they're coming here illegally. And those Hispanics in El Paso, by and large, are American Hispanics who don't want illegal immigration either. we got to run out to a break when we come back. We'll talk more about this. Stick with us after two messages on Right Now with Jim Dawes. Between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow, sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to see how Voice IQ can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more. Between prepping ingredients, setting the table, and planning your tomorrow, Sometimes you need an extra hand with dinner. Delta Faucet is here to help. Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot with Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology and fill it with the perfect amount of water. Done. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to see how Voice IQ can fill your dog's bowl, wash your hands, and more. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an America First perspective on the Mojo 5.0 radio network. President Trump promised to reform our disastrous trade deals that have cost Americans billions of good-paying manufacturing jobs and ran up trillions of dollars in trade deficits. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about finalizing an agreement with China to finally open their markets and protect American intellectual property. But we've heard all that before. To talk about this, we're joined by Dan D'Amico, former CEO of Nucor Steel Company and advisor to the Trump campaign. He's chairman for the Coalition for, for a Prosperous America and author of American Made, Why Making Things Will Return Us to Greatness, available now on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Dan, thanks for joining us on right now. My pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, Dan, the economy's booming. We've got record low unemployment. The stock market is uh, replenishing everybody's retirement funds. And for the first time in decades, middle-class American workers are starting to see an increase in their wages, their real buying power. We've had the largest trade deficit in the last month, however, and our economy's uh, future is at risk if we can't finalize some sort of trade agreement with China to um, to protect the future health of our economy. Uh, what can you tell us about the current state of uh, those trade negotiations? Well, listen, those, those trade negotiations are ongoing. Um, and uh, Robert Lighthizer, the uh, ambassador, USTR, U.S. Trade Representative, um, is leading those negotiations. 
there are other people involved in them, but he is uh, the key uh, person that uh, President Trump has put in charge. Uh, I've known Bob Lighthizer for a long time, decades, and uh, I wouldn't want anybody but him fighting this battle for us. I am uh, thoroughly so- convinced that Robert Lighthizer is a, a economic patriot, um, very unlike um, you know most of um, our past trade representatives that uh, have, have not done a good job for the American public. What I worry about is the people sitting on the other side of the table from Lighthizer uh, they've never kept any deal in the past, and and I don't know why we have such confidence they they would keep keep a deal now. I'm not sure that we have a whole lot of confidence that they will keep a deal. I think that's uh, the very subject of these uh, intense negotiations that have been going on for some time. You've heard a lot of banter in the press, um, and uh, that this is happening or that's happening, but you haven't seen a deal yet. You haven't seen any final meeting set up yet between President. Trump and uh, his uh, the Chinese leader, um, and uh, that's because uh, Bob Lighthizer is the most knowledgeable person in the world about this issue, about the concerns that you just expressed. He's fully aware of them. He warned about this years ago when they joined the WTO, which was a huge mistake um, on our part to support that. Uh, he gets it. He knows it. He's uh, going to make sure that uh, if we do get a deal, that's a deal that's going to hold China accountable um, if they don't honor the agreement. He's very much aware, as is most of, most of the negotiating team, whether it's um, the hardcore uh, Lighthizer, uh, Navarro, Ross folks, um, or the Minchin, uh, Kudlow folks, they all are keenly aware and China's never lived up to their agreements um, in the past. Um, and uh, that that's an issue going forward. So that's why you haven't seen any quick uh, deal come out of these discussions because it has to be right or there won't be one. Simple as that. Well, I do worry when Kudlow and um, Mnuchin get in the room. I know that, uh, you know, their, their uh, worldview is shaped by uh, Wall Street that has profited so greatly at the expense of Main Street. But I want to... Uh, just play for the listeners and have you comment on it. Uh, a, a clip uh, from Lighthizer appearing on Meet the Press with Margaret Brennan, where he's sort of laying out uh, what the administration's goals are in these negotiations. So, so let's just put on the on the table a little bit of background. China has a policy of of theft of intellectual property from American and other companies, from forced technology transfer and from cyber theft, and then state capitalism to buy up technology. Technology is the most important advantage that Americans have economically. We are innovators and we are excellent at technology. So you have a policy from China that's designed really to get at this technology and non-economic grounds, and it is one of the most important elements of the U.S. So the president said, do a study to us at USTR. We did a whole of government study. We spent eight months. We came out with a report. The president then put in place tariffs in order to get China to change this policy. It's extremely important that China does that, that it opens its market and then it takes these steps. I know the idea is to open up these uh, this huge Chinese market to American exporters. But, you know, Dan, 
we are never going to be able to match China or any of these other emerging economies on um, on wages and the cost of labor. Do we really have an upside with making an agreement with China just based on the, their promises to stop stealing our our technology and our intellectual assets? Well, listen, there's two different points that you're, you're discussing there, you're bringing up. One is us wanting them to open their markets. Um, quite honestly, uh, while that's important, I think that's secondary to all of the other issues that Ambassador Lighthizer discussed in that clip that you just played for me. If you go back and take a look at it, he spent most of his time talking about the intellectual property theft, the trade cheating, the forced technology transfer, the massive government subsidies, basically the predatory mercantilistic uh, economic practices and economic aggression that China has been waging on us and the world. Um, 90% of this deal is about stopping them from doing what they've been doing, uh, simply opening their markets. Nobody knows this better than Robert Lighthizer or the president. They both know this. Simply opening up their markets does not deal with the major 800-pound gorilla that needs to be dealt with, and that's China's massive economic aggression um, and intellectual property theft. And quite honestly, um, our government under Trump um, has come out with a, a security evaluation that basically doesn't consider them to be partners anymore. All right? I love that. They're strategic adversaries. Um, I was uh, president at, at a dinner that this Coalition for a Prosperous America had uh, a couple of weeks ago in Washington. We awarded American Trade Hero Awards to Robert Lighthizer, uh, Senator Rubio, and Senator Tammy Baldwin. And they all got up and spoke to a room of about uh, 100-plus people, um, CEOs from around the country that are part of our coalition. And uh, they were very, very clear about the China threat. Um, and uh, the primary issue is, is not opening our, their markets to us. That needs to happen. Believe me, that needs to happen so that we can make things here and ship them there. Um, and, and they have tremendous barriers to that. But more importantly than that is the attack that they've been waging and the trade war they've been waging on the United States in particular uh, for some 20 years now. And uh, Senator Rubio actually defined China as the enemy, which I thought was quite enlightening and quite stark in terms of the description, something I haven't heard any politician really say publicly before. And that's, uh, you can actually find that on Facebook if you want to look for it. I disagree with Marco Rubio on many things, but on uh, his identification or, uh, of China as a strategic geopolitical foe that we should not be enriching, I could not agree more. I've got a clip here from Marco Rubio. I think he was appearing on, uh, on Fox talking with Martha McCallum, and he was, uh, he was, he was just outlining uh, the real threat that uh, f- uh, China poses and how badly they've abused their entrance into the WTO and, and our trade agreement with them. 
We have a huge trade problem with China. It's structural. It's not just how much they buy from us. It's it's what they do to our companies. They force our companies to turn over intellectual property secrets. You know, you can't do business in China unless you do that. If you can do it at all. Meanwhile, their companies can do whatever they want here. Okay, that's what's got to be fixed because that's long term and it's problematic. ZTE is a is a cell phone and technology company. They got caught violating the Iran deal and they got caught violating the Iran sanctions in North Korea. Okay, they got hit with a billion dollar fine and they were told they. They had to fire the employees who did that. You know what they did? They didn't do it. They lied. They didn't fire those employees. They gave them a bonus. They tried to cover that up as well, like they tried to cover up the violation. So now we hit them and said, fine, you can't buy our semiconductors anymore. And that put them out of business. That's a good move. That's what we need to be doing when people are violating these things. But now it appears that some are saying, well, let's find them again and let's make them change the board of directors. That's the same deal they broke already once. And they, in fact, did that. Uh, The president let him back in. And I guess what I'm trying to get at here, Dan, is, uh, you know, we're signing a trade agreement based on a promise from China uh, to stop, you know, stealing our intellectual property and and, um, hacking our um, our, uh, trade secrets. Uh, in order to gain access to the market where I'm not sure that we're going to be able to to really benefit that greatly. I know it's a huge market, but they will always be able to undercut us on uh, their labor costs, which are the number one cost of any goods or service. So, and, and on top of that, they're challenging us militarily. So if, if it were up to me, I would say start treating China as we used to uh, the old Soviet Union. We certainly would have never... Uh, entered into a massive trade deal that would have enriched the Soviet Union so they could build more missiles to point at us. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think more and more people, as witnessed by Senator Marco Rubio's uh, complete change in in view of uh, trade, and particularly trade with China and the threat of China, uh, more and more people, more and more leaders in this country uh, understand that, see that, um, there's real talk of disengagement, which is uh, a complete disengagement, which is not an easy thing to do, but it does demonstrate that people have had it. They, enough is enough. Uh, one of my favorite catchphrases that I tweet with all the time, um, we've had enough of this. And, and China's not to be trusted. And, you know, there's nobody that uh, knows this better than Bob Lighthizer and President Trump. Uh, and there's other team team members like Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross. They get it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we are interconnected in this world, so we've got to work to, to come up with a deal, if possible, that deal, deals not just with, okay, the promises, but also what is going to be the consequence of you not living up to the promises like you never do and never have in the past. There has to be real consequences. It has to be immediate. It can't be something that's drug out for months or years while people argue about it. Um, and, and I think that's all part of the negotiations that are going on. So we've got to, based upon my knowledge of people like Bob Lighthizer and what drives them, and he's not just an economic patriot, he is a true American patriot. Um, and, and so is the president. Um, Based upon my knowledge of, of, of where they're at and their thinking, um, you know, we're either going to get a strong deal or there won't be a deal. If there's no deal, there's going to be tariffs, and the tariffs probably be as big or bigger than they are today. Um, and I think the Chinese know that, and I don't think they're in a real position to, to uh, 
you know, be able to undermine that process um, because at the end of the day, as has already been demonstrated, whether tariffs get placed on Chinese goods or not is, is, is at the discretion of the president and his, and Robert Lighthizer and people like them. And there are and people, they, are there are people in Congress that are trying to take that authority away. And I can only imagine that they're, they're acting at the behest of, uh, you know, of the globalists on wall street. You know, Dan, when I was growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, there were three major auto plants. There was, um, GM Doraville, a Ford, uh, plant in Hapeville and a, another GM plant in, uh, in Lakewood in South Atlanta. And I knew a lot of the, uh, a lot of my friends, uh, fathers worked at those plants. Uh, they made a good living there. They were able to provide for their family on a single income, you know, a decent middle-class lifestyle. They were able to take, uh, you know, a vacation once a year and, uh, buy a new car occasionally and, and, you know, have a dignified retirement. And these, uh, these globalists told us that, you know, if we would sign NAFTA and enter into the globalist regime, that um, it would benefit the United States. Within about a decade, all three of those plants were gone. Those families, uh, you know, lost a, a good means of uh, support. All of those jobs went down to Mexico. This was, you know, uh, under NAFTA. And I know you come from an industry in the steel industry that was uh, just hammered by uh, globalization um my i guess the point i'm trying to get at we've got 50 states in this country we've got abundant national resources natural resources um we've got a good workforce uh what i explain to me why i shouldn't be an isolationist a, a trade restrictionist when it comes to these matters well listen uh trading system, global trading system has turned into a colossal failure for the United States. Um, we have a accumulated trade deficit in goods approaching 17 plus trillion dollars since 1990. 17 trillion dollars plus since 1990. Which, you know, right, I always wondered if there wasn't some connection because if you look at our trade deficits, and our national debt, they almost exactly mirror each other. Well, I, I can't speak to that, Jim. Uh, but what I can say to you is that um, the whole, it, it's generally accepted now by just about anybody who uh, is not arguing for the sake of arguing. It's generally accepted that NAFTA was a failure, that it did none of the things that it said it was going to do. And that uh, put it, letting China become a permanent favored nation trading status country that allowed them to get into the WTO, um, that was all done with the idea that someday as China gets to be more economically successful, they'll become more democratic, they'll be more like us, they'll be an open free market. It's almost unanimous today that that mindset was a total failure okay now it wasn't that way 15 years ago or 10 years ago we've been fighting this battle educating people for a long time now david against Um, goliath and and thanks to president trump it's now come to the point where people can't deny the utter failure of that whole approach and uh, so th- those are the good things that are going on. And we can thank President Trump and his t- 
people he surrounded himself with on this issue for getting that message out. Of course, China uh, and their president made it uh, a little easier when they came out with their 2025 proposal and said that they were going to dominate the world. They weren't interested in being a partner with anybody. They used the words dominate. They're going to dominate all the industries of the future. And that just drove things home even harder. And having a president now that's willing to stand up and say enough's enough, we're not going to take it anymore, um, has allowed the, the many of the multinational companies who were part of the effort to, to develop China's economy uh, to the point that it is today um, at our expense, it now allows them to be able to say, listen, okay, um, we need to work better uh, with the, with this president, and we need to, to uh, accept the fact that this whole approach was a failure, and we need to move in a different direction with respect to China. And even most recently, you have Jamie Dimon, this, the chairman and CEO of uh, uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Bank, um, come out and basically say the president's right to go after China. That was stunning. Uh, and and that's a big switch for Jamie. Um, I personally know that's not always the, the view that he's had, certainly not publicly anyway. Now, he may not be a fan of terrorists, but he gets it with respect to China, that they are an existential threat to the future, not only of our country and our leadership in the world, but to the world itself. Um, and, it's, and it's time for all the other nations of the world to come together and say, enough, enough, quit selling your soul for a few shekels. You know, you talked about uh, we've been fighting this battle for a long time, and you've been a, a real leader in this field. You wrote, you wrote your book uh, on manu- American manufacturing back in 2015, um, really giving the broad outlines of how we need to return America to a major manufacturing uh, power and, and reclaim our preeminence in these uh, these these industries. Uh, how much... Um, money has the steel industry invested in America since the Trump administration uh, reimposed these steel tariffs? Well, listen, uh, <laughs> the, the steel industry, of which I've been a part of, is really the canary, one of the canaries in the coal mine in this whole China situation, okay? And so we became champions on, on this trade distortion, on um, trade distorting practices very early on out of necessity. Uh, but it's happened to other industries. Uh, since President Trump stood up for the American steel industry, its workers, the American middle class, the aluminum industry, um, the U.S. steel industry led by Nucor, my, uh, uh, which I am chairman emeritus of and uh, worked for for over 32 years and was the CEO and chairman of uh, for 13 years, um, is leading the way. And, and we're talking on the part of Nucor alone, billions of dollars, uh, five, six billion dollars of investments. Then you add U.S. Steel's billions of investments and uh, other steel companies, Steel Dynamics, um, and even some foreign-owned entities uh, from Indian steel uh, uh, producers have, have now taken up uh, and restarted operations in the United States and invested more billions of dollars. Uh, we're, we're talking well in excess of $10 billion, creating high-paying jobs. Um, the multiplier effect on a steel manufacturing job in this country is somewhere between 7 to 10 to 1. 
So for every one steel worker's job, whether it be at Ducor or U.S. Steel, um, there's seven to ten other supporting jobs that grow come about because of that. And in my book, I make the case that, listen, people said for decades that uh, we didn't need to be makers of things. We didn't need to be manufacturers. We could just be a services-oriented country. And that's that was baloney. That was complete garbage. Um, and we saw that culminate with the Great Recession. And what we have to do, realize is that, you know, the, the, it's the manufacturers that make things from Mother Earth that provide the serv- need for services to begin with. They add value. And, and, and so the service sector thrives if we have a strong manufacturing sector. If we don't have a strong manufacturing sector, if we're not makers of things, we end up with one financial bubble after another. And if you recall reading my book, you will, I, I laid out all the financial bubbles we've had since the 90s because people trying to make something out of nothing. Uh, culminating with the massive uh, derivative scam uh, that prompted the Great Recession and the collapse of uh, Lehman Brothers and others. And with this Uh huge rise in this financial industry, we've got some of our best and brightest who normally would have gone into productive enterprise just sitting around boardrooms trying to figure out how to chisel people out of a a point or two of of more of what they make. You know, when I go shopping, um, usually it's at Home Depot, I always try to uh, look for American-made and as much as I possibly can buy American-made. And my whole life, I have made a point of buying um, American large appliances and cars and everything else. But I've noticed in, lately in Home Depot, Samsung and LG are displacing um, uh, Whirlpool and, um, and General Electric appliances there's almost no GE or uh, or Whirlpool appliances left in there. It's all Samsung and LG. So the question I'm trying to get to is, you know, we, we protected the uh, steel industry, and it was a obvious and huge success. Could that template uh, be, you know, used to protect other industries? I haven't seen the price of steel go through the roof. Well, you know, there were some short – Short-term, large increases in steel pricing, but it, after the uh, uh, the hedge buying and all that stuff, and, 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 and settling itself down, steel pricing actually is now back below where it was prior to the tariff stone end, but way above the pricing that we saw when steel was being dumped here. Um, and and the lesson learned there is, um, you know, we have a globally competitive industry, we have a globally competitive marketplace. Um, all we're looking for is a level playing field to compete and win on. But and they don't. They don't. The they don't have a level playing field. They engage in predatory practices where they dump and they run our our whole sectors of the economy out of business, and then they return to. You're right about that, Jim. But what the point we were talking about the steel industry as right. an example. The steel industry has been given a closer to level playing field now because of what the president did on those 232 tariffs. And you're asking me if similar things would help other industries. Exactly. And the answer is yes. Okay. Once you do things that, that force the trade cheaters to, to, to be honest and to stop cheating, preventing them from doing that, preventing them from inflicting their predatory practices um, on, on our economy and the co- and companies in, in, in our country, uh, they can 
and will be successful because we have great workforce, because we have a great education system, because we have a great country, because we have a great financial system, and, and, and we have the resources to do this. The only reason why you read in the paper about, oh, we don't have rare earth resources anymore, it's not because they're not in the ground. It's because China's predatory pricing practices put them all out of business, and they can't, it, they can't afford to dig it out of the ground and make a, make a buck at it. All, these, all those resources are here. The human resources, the material resources, natural resources, financial resources, the laws that we have. There's no reason why America should not continue to be strong going into the future. And that's what the president is doing with his four-point uh, economic plan that's designed to, to improve our global competitiveness with tax reform, trade reform, regulatory reform, and energy reform. And it's working and if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve getting way ahead of itself and raising interest rates, we'd still be hitting a 3% GDP rate in growth every quarter. They've now decided that they were wrong, and they settled down, and they're backing off. And, uh, you know, my take is that you're going to see strong economic growth in this country going forward, and the president's plan is working and he's, he's the first president since Ronald Reagan to understand what's really going on in the world and saying we're going to stop the gamemanship, we're going to stop the cheating, we're going to, we've had enough, we're not going to take it anymore. We want the world to prosper, but not at our expense. We want to be part of the prosperous growth. And we have a great country, we have a great economy, but there are issues that we have to deal with, and our number one adversary is China, and everybody knows it. Everybody in the world knows it. Dan, we've Everybody got about a minute left, and I want to—I wanted you to tell the listeners a little bit about a coalition for a prosperous America, so they can be part of this effort to make America great again in the uh, in the area of manufacturing, farming, and um, and uh, labor. I'd be happy to, and I encourage you to go to all of your listeners to go to prosperousamerica.org, learn all about us. We are a powerful coalition of manufacturers, workers, farmers, and ranchers. We represent the interests of 4.1 million households and growing. Our board and membership includes Republicans, Democrats, independents, conservatives, and progressives. And what we stand for is a national trade strategy to eliminate the trade deficit, create good-paying jobs, and achieve broadly shared prosperity without surrendering our sovereignty, the environment, food safety, we advocate for trade and track tax strategies that promote manufacturing and agricultural growth, produce jobs, and increase incomes. God bless Dan, America. Dan uh, D'Amico is uh, the author of American Made, Why Making Things Will Return Us to Greatness. You can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Dan, thanks for joining us. Hold on the line. Thank you, Jim. As you make plans this season, consider convenient COVID-19 testing from Quest. Get the same test hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's a great fit for your busy life. With over 20 million COVID-19 tests processed, you can count on Quest. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. That's questcovid19.com. Whether you host a nightly dinner party for two or five, keeping your eating and dining area clean helps keep your mind on the dinner party. 
and not on the cleanup afterwards. Viva paper towels clean like cloth, trapping splatters and sauces that could become countertop stains or stuck on messes. And they're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. For an exceptional cloth-like paper towel, there's Viva. Visit vivatowels.com to soak up the clean feeling of home.